it's it's not a cold war about ideologies or in the sense of capitalism or communism it's it's a cold war about the decadent hyperliberal west and russia which is the upholder of traditional values You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, and welcome to the War College Annex. I am your host, Matthew Galt. This episode comes with a disclaimer. We're trying something a little new here at War College, and in the future, we may release extra episodes during the month that deal with topics tangentially related to war and conflict. We're calling these the War College Annex. To be clear, this is an extra. You're still going to hear four episodes every month about topics that stick close to our original vision for the show. That said, I'm excited about today's topic. It deals directly with power and politics. We've attempted in our way to be apolitical on War College, but I ask listeners to remember their class events. War is the continuation of politics by other means. If you're a longtime listener and you enjoyed our conversation with Annie Jacobson about the CIA's ESP program, my conversation with Douglas Rushkoff about the birth of brand recognition during World War II, or the episode with Peter Pomerantsev about Russia's postmodern dictatorship, this is an episode for you. Norman Vincent Peale and the Power of Positive Thinking, Ayn Rand and Pepe the Frog, Chaos Magic, the Alt-Right, and the power of the occult as a political force in the modern era. The past few years of political life have been strange. Some online fans of Donald Trump claim they used meme magic to will him into office. Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, often talked about occult philosopher Julius Evola. Alexander Dugan, a man some called Putin's prophet, flew a strange and mystical symbol behind him during lectures and speeches. These are not crackpot theories, but actual well-researched facts. Even if you and I don't believe in magic and the occult and the power of positive thinking, it's clear that some people in high positions of political power across the world do. That's the subject of a new book from Gary Lockman called Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Lockman is an author and lecturer whose previous works include Rudolf Steiner, An Introduction to His Life and Work, and Turn Off Your Mind, The Mystic Sixties, and the dark side of the age of Aquarius. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right, well, tell us about the book, and how does Trump factor in? Um, the book is about a sort of a kind of a cult milieu, let's say, um, not necessarily immediately around Trump, but in some of his, uh, well, in some cases, yes, but you know, some of his fellow travelers. But with Trump himself, um, we know that he's been a lifelong devotee of um, Norman Vincent Peale, um, who wrote um, a very, very popular book in the 1950s called The Power of Positive Thinking, and for many years um, gave sermons at the Marble Collegiate uh, Church on Fifth Avenue uh, in New York. Uh, And then Trump had attended his sermons, and also uh, Trump's father um, was a fan as well. And the whole idea about positive thinking is this sort of uh, sense of a kind of inner optimism and an affirmation and um, a refusal to allow sort of reality to kind of bully you uh, in the way that uh, most of us uh, allow it to. Uh, 
Um, we, we know we tend to think that reality isn't particularly wieldy, and uh, it doesn't uh, it, it 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 doesn't really respond to our uh, requests immediately. Uh, and uh, but the power of positive thinking, the idea is that through very vivid visualization and intense concentration and meditation on an achievable result, not something that's completely you know, beyond belief, uh, but something that is, you know, quite achievable, uh, that, that can be done. If you persist in this often enough and intensely enough, um, this will come about. And uh, one of the um, central sort of themes or maxims that uh, Trump um, gleaned from uh, Norman Vincent Peale was the idea that uh, facts aren't important. It's our attitude toward the facts that are important. And it's what we think about reality rather than so-called reality itself that has its real effect upon us. And this goes back actually to uh, the Stoic philosopher uh, Epictetus um, in ancient Greece, who uh, said that it's not things so much as what we think of things uh, that affects us. And so this is something that has informed Trump, and if you've read any biographies about him, and so this is something that, that, uh, that, that's been known for a while. Um, but the strange thing is that it turned out that um, some of Trump's uh, supporters among the alt-right seem to have been using techniques uh, of this kind of um, uh, belief in order to actually help Trump get into office. And this is when I read about this in, in a blog um, uh, by uh, uh, a, a New Thought blogger named Harvey Bishop, I started looking up, <laughs> uh, following it up, because this was you know, during the whole time of Trump's campaign and then the election, when all this strange stuff was coming out, uh, when it seemed like reality was being turned inside out uh, in a variety of different ways. And that's one of the themes that runs through the book. At the same time that you can find this sort of occult atmosphere, milieu uh, around sort of Trump's world, and also, uh, as, as, uh, as you mentioned, over in, in Russia, uh, around Putin as well. Um, the whole sort of idea of reality has become very malleable. You know, we live in the post-truth alternative fact world, and that's also linked to the whole <clears throat> sort of strange interaction between reality with the, the real, the big R, and its representation in either television or the online world, where you know, reality TV is the most popular thing. And uh, right now we have a reality uh, TV uh, celebrity uh, becoming president. Uh, so all of these themes seem to come together once I started looking at it. And uh, Trump is he's, – he's sort of a character in, in a way who's been kind of carried along uh, both by his own efforts and those by people around him. Um, to actually uh, make the most use out of this whole time now when, when the whole notion of reality is very, very much up for grabs. And a lot of this stuff isn't super new, right? You, you mentioned new thought uh, when you were talking. Can you, can you tell us just a little bit about what that is? Well, new, new thought is um, something that goes back um, to, well, you can say it goes back to sort of the mid uh, um, uh, 19th century America. And it has its roots um, actually in, in Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American essayist. And he actually coined the uh, phrase new thought in, in one of his essays. And it is linked to this sort of optimistic, forward-looking, affirmative sensibility that was part of America then. And uh, as you know, Emerson, um, his sort of central idea was that we don't need to 
stand by the traditions of Europe. You know, this is a new world. There's a new beginning. We have our own uh, destiny and, um, you know, self-sufficiency, uh, self-reliance and things of that sort. So it's a very American idea. And then it was actually also picked up um, uh, later by uh, William James, um, who, much like Emerson, have a, have a similar kind of character, an optimistic, forward-looking um, sort of sensibility. And James himself got involved in what was called the mind cure school at the time. This is the late 19th um, century because uh, he had used some of the techniques uh, to cure himself or, or at least to treat some ailments that he had, um, um, depression, uh, angina, and, and other sort of nervous ailments. And uh, he was so successful using some of these mind cure methods that um, he actually lobbied, I think is in, in Massachusetts, um, against – the, uh, against this very severe legislation that was um, trying to get passed to uh, limit, you know, the access of uh, to kind of mind mind cure sort of thing. And what's mind cure? Well, it's like like Christian Science. Uh, it's basically the idea that although we don't understand how this can can be the case, and it doesn't immediately seem to be the case, the mind, the inner world, the mental world actually can directly affect the you know the physical world the external world the the world of the senses that we take to be the basic reality we we tend to see things the other way around that what's really real is the physical sensory you know quantifiable world that science tells us is the one reality and anything going in, on inside our heads is just sort of a, a reflection of that in some way but mental science new thought positive thinking mind cure all of these sort of uh, these are all these are all sort of practical applications of ideas that go back to Plato, basically, or the very you know uh, the, the roots of, of of Western thought, and, and and that in that tradition it's basically the mind or consciousness that um, takes precedent, and the physical world is a sort of uh, reflection of it. It's the other way around, and fundamentally, all this mind cure or new thought or positive thinking is is based on somehow eliciting in yourself <clears throat> a kind of real acceptance of that idea that you really you really actually experience that that is true uh, not so much that you're just saying to yourself it's not so much kind of you know cognitive assent is that you actually have an experience of this and it's it's a sort of revelation and um fundamentally what it is about is it's the idea that thoughts are causative thoughts can affect the world in some way directly uh, there's a variety of different schools about this. And it, it, initially, it was used mostly for health, as I said, um, uh, Christian science and a variety of other practitioners. And then gradually, it shifted over to what's become known as the gospel of prosperity, where not, not only can you sort of think yourself healthy, you can think yourself rich. Uh, you know, there's a famous book called Think, think and Grow Rich. Um, and this is, this is where it leads into, you know, uh, something that uh, most rational and critical people consider to be just, you know, just, just fraudsters and uh, charlatans and so on and so on. But it, it has a long history, and it's something that's never quite gone away. It sort of had its heyday you say at the turn of the century in the early 20th century, but in recent times it's been revived and repackaged uh, in different ways. There was a book called The Secret. There was a film too, I don't know, uh, I think in the 2000s at some point that was very, very popular. It just basically reprocessed these same kinds of things. And what I try to show in the book in the beginning is that, yes, if, if, you know, if we first sort of think of it, the first thing we think is like, well, if only that was the case, if only reality was as, as amenable to our desires as, as you say – but when you look into this and you realize that a variety of different people of, uh, you know, uh, great genius and, and, and brilliance throughout history have in some way 
accepted some of the fundamental ideas associated with this. It, it becomes something that, at least for me, was less easy to just dismiss. And then the idea that why it's important now is that somehow, for some reason, in the political world, these ideas have become very prominent. Um, they're, they're in Trump himself. They're in supporters of Trump and also across the planet in, in, um, in Russia. You mentioned this fellow, Alexander Dugan. Uh, and he's involved with something along these, these lines as well. It's not so much positive thinking as, as um, a kind of darker variant that is known as chaos magic, which has a whole story um, in itself. I guess I'm wondering how it made the jump from self-help to politics. Do you put that at Alexander Dugan's feet or do you think it's somewhere else? Well, I think in a sense it's 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 been there all along. I mean, you mentioned Mitch Horowitz's book, and in there he points out that Reagan, Ronald Reagan, was um, a devotee of this as well. He was also a devotee of of, of Peel. Uh, he also read a great deal of uh, an American occult and sort of uh, mystical um, encyclopedias of Helen Manley P. Hall. Uh, who lectured for many years in Los Angeles. And he he had a book about the destiny of America. And again, it was a sort of mystical sense uh, that the United States had a kind of global destiny, not only in an economic or political way, but in a kind of messianic way almost. Um, and again, it, it, you, you, it's there if you look for it, and you don't really need conspiracy theories. Because uh, uh, there's, there's the only conspiracy theories that show up in, in this book of mine are, are ones that people involved in the book, you know, uh, accept themselves. But <clears throat> there's no conspiracy going on with any of the sort of stuff I'm writing about, because it's just there if you look for it. And for some reason, in the <laughs> middle of this, you know, the second decade of the uh, 21st century, this stuff suddenly kind of it kind of it, it the image that comes to me is that it got sort of turned inside out. That's uh, and I and I think from a variety of different perspectives. It's not so much the rise of the occult by itself as that the occult is profiting by the breakdown of, you know, our Western rational mindset that's that's going on in different ways. Um, and the post-truth alternative fact world is a symptom of that and also an, an, an agent of it. And I, I tend to think of it as something like trickle down metaphysics that I mean, not to get too highbrow, but I think. In many ways, what's at work is what Nietzsche, uh, philosopher Nietzsche, predicted or saw was coming in the late 1880s uh, when he saw this uh, nihilism, this basically co complete collapse of the Western notions of truth. And that came about by the very pursuit of truth. You know, the, the, the both the scientific and the religious pursuit of truth led, Nietzsche said, at the, towards the end of the 19th century, to the recognition that there's no truth with the capital T. You know, there's no absolute truth. There's only relative truths and so on and so on. And while this doesn't affect our sort of technological world, the utilitarian application of of knowledge and truth it does affect our you know sort of existential world in the sense that well what what does it mean anymore where are we going and and what's real anymore and so on and so on and while Nietzsche you know sort of saw this he and in a way you can kind of if you want to be a bit sort of trendy you can say he was a kind of shaman and he took on this this illness that was coming and tried to overcome it himself um but 
he saw that it was on its way and we're, we're sort of the inheritors of it now. And but it's not it's not coming as some kind of existential crisis as it still was happening, say, in the mid 20th century. It's sort of, it's this kind of blase postmodern acceptance of kind of, you know, well, nothing means anything, does it? Or it means whatever you want it to mean. And then a kind of almost gleeful, you know, uh, dismantling of the previous, you know, dominant worldview, which I guess from different perspectives is the patriarchy or it's Western Civ or whatever it is. So the occult is it, it had its own you know kind of argument against sort of rationalism and science and so on, and so it participates in in, in the dismantling of it. But what's come out of that is not all the good stuff. <laughs> Let's say you know the spiritually oriented um, people that are interested in the occult say who you know were, they 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 were they felt hemmed in by the very you know constricting constraints. Uh, of, of logic and reason and science and so on and so on. Uh, but they expected something good to come from, you know, the release of those. But what's happened is that, you know, uh, there aren't any angels that, that arrive um, when, you know, things start to get kind of exciting. So um, I think there's several different factors that are happening right now in which the fundamental ideas like what we understood to be reality has become kind of, as I said, folded inside out. And it's it's all sort of up for grabs now. And so the idea that, you know, some group or different groups of either disaffected online youth addicts or, or uh, you know, right-wing uh, far-right extremists in some way somehow thought, you know, Trump into office, that doesn't sound as strange when you see the other things that are going on at, at the same time. Explain this idea that Trump's online supporters willed him into office. How do they, they understand that? How do they see that as happening? What's supposed to have been at work is something that's known as meme magic. And I guess I don't have to explain what a meme is, but, you know, it's Richard Dawkins' term for a kind of cultural gene. And meme magic is an outgrowth of a kind of uh, variant of traditional magic that's known as chaos magic. And um, chaos magic started up sort of in the 70s. It had kind of it had sort of previous incarnations, but not 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 as explicitly known as that. And um, it kind of started up in London in the 70s around the same time as the punk scene, the Sex Pistols and all that was happening. And you can see it as a kind of DIY magic in the same way that sort of the punk was a DIY, you know, rock and roll sort of thing. And uh, easiest way to sort of differentiate it is saying traditional magic, you know, you have the traditional weapons and tools and symbols and and uh, and so on and so on. So you have the magic circle and you have your wand and you have the elements and you have to, you know, uh, write out the name of the demon just right. And there's, you know, you have to do it at a certain time and the astrological influences are, are amenable and so on and so on. But in chaos magic, you, you sort of say, forget all that. And you just sort of make it up as you go along and you use whatever's available. And so when they, people were doing this in the 70s and 80s, they were just using any kind of pop sort of stuff that, that in popular culture sort of items that were available. So they're using sort of, you know, things like PJ Harvey albums. And part of the whole, this whole, the symbol of chaos magic, this eight pointed star comes from uh, Michael Moorcock. Uh, he's a British uh, sci-fi uh, writer. He's written more than sci-fi, but he's uh, the, They've taken the symbol, the chaos star, from the series of novels of his dealing with a character called the Eternal Champion, and there's this ongoing war between order and chaos. And so it's a way you appropriate kind of you know items from popular culture or whatever's at hand, and you turn them into magical things. And it's much along the same lines as kind of found art. You know, when you pick up something on the street and you take it home and you put it in a frame or something, suddenly it's a, you know, it's a work of art. It just was a piece of rubbish in the street, but now it's art. So it's the same sort of principle, but now it's 
set of art, it's it's a magical item, and you can charge it with sort of you know um, your imagination and your will, and turn it into a talisman that has a you know it's an object that has a certain magical charge with it. And so, so the jump from that is what's most available now uh, to people practicing or interested in this kind of stuff is stuff on the internet. If we think of the internet as a kind of exteriorized imagination, what people are posting on the internet is sort of uh, sort of the, uh, along the same lines as when they are sort of visualizing some sort of magical symbol or sigil um, in you know in, in their minds. So instead of visualizing it in their minds, they're putting it up on on the internet. And people playing around with the internet or these online addicts who were posting things on 4chan, it seemed it seemed to them that things they were posting were having an effect in the in the real world. And the example that um, is, is given most often is that uh, they were fascinated with the Dark Knight Rises film, and they had a whole forum, uh, it's called Bane Posting, and the opening of the film, and Bane is on the plane, and, you know, he's supposed to be being taken, but he's actually in charge, and, and so on and so on, and so they posted lots of, you know, shots from that, from that film, and then somebody noticed that after, you know, the horrible German Wings 9525 uh, crash, that there were a lot of strange coincidences between the crash and the stuff and in, in the the things they were posting from the film and uh, there's uh, a town near the crash site is called Bane you know in the film you know Bane crashes the, the plane on purpose and that's what turned out to be the case with the, the German wings flight one of the pilots crashed it on purpose one of the investigators was named Bruce Robin and Batman's you know secret identity is Bruce Wayne and and um, Robin is a sidekick and so on so there seemed to be all these coincidences happening around this kind of thing. And people started to feel, my God, what's going on here? There's some kind of, this seems to be some kind of weird magic going on. And so it was christened synchromysticism, which is just, just sort of a techno updating of uh, C.G. Jung, the psychologist C.G. Jung's term synchronicity, which is his term for a meaningful coincidence. When something happening in your head, in your mind, and something happening in the outside world coincide and they they have a immediate indubitable direct meaningful connection but there's no causal connection you know there's no way that one caused the other but they're related in this other way he he talks about a causal connectedness which is sort of a you know strange way of trying to say a, a connection without a connection but if you transfer that something happening in the mind and the external world to something happening on the internet and the external world. This is what synchromysticism is about. And there was a similar sort of phenomenon around the whole Slender Man um, craze that was happening a bit a bit before this. And so the next ingredient in this strange story um, is this slacker amphibian named Peppy the Frog. Now, Peppy was a creation of the cartoonist named Matt Fury, and he just was, uh, as I said, he was a slacker amphibian, and um, he originally first appears he's he's basically urinating in public and you know someone walks by and says why, why are you doing that and he says oh it feels good man and so that that meme of the the urinating frog um saying feels good man got picked up on the internet and just got spread you know and, and proliferated and, and and you know people like Katy perry and Nicki minaj and other sort of celebrities were you know cool to be seen with with peppy and it seemed to be an okay thing but then what happened is that some of these four channers who were you know behind Trump because they liked him because he was sort of like the ultimate internet troll. He was sort of like the, the ultimate kind of spiteful creature that they themselves both kind of seemed to, you know, emulate and also, you know, seem to feel like the world deserved someone, 
someone like Trump, um, they just got behind him because it was politically incorrect and it was, you know, the most radical, you know, thing they could do and, you know, whatever. And one of them posted a um, picture of Pepe looking over the wall that Trump was supposed to be, you know, building or, or promised to build, um, you know, the wall between Mexico and, and the U.S. And then Trump, Trump supporters picked that up and they started using Pepe as well and all that. And so the idea is that somehow, somewhere along the line, by just posting all of these, you know, uh, images of, of Pepe, uh, he's 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 in the whole scene with the deplorables and you know with Trump's retinue and and all that. And there's you know even there's even some there's some posts of Pepe uh, looking like Trump and all that. That by doing this sort of consciously, explicitly, they, they were going to sort of duplicate what had already happened by by chance, you know, um, sort of. The Internet was going to have this effect on 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 um, the real world. And alongside of this, all this weird mythology started to build up around the frog, around Pepe the Frog. And it really gets into some strange, strange waters. Um, uh, for a while, there was this whole craze about Kek. And who's Kek? Well, Kek is an ancient Egyptian god of chaos who's actually a frog. He's a frog-headed god. Um, you know, the Egyptians had animal-headed deities. So Pepe the Frog was being seen as an avatar of this ancient um, Egyptian god, Kek, who both of them are interested in chaos. They're both interested in this kind of chaos magic and bringing on chaos. And that was the whole idea, too, was to uh, disrupt everything. Again, it's this, this notion of breaking down, you know, the existing structures. And so Kek, Kek kind of announced, you know, the coming new age by by first bringing on the the chaos that would break down the old structures and turn everything into this kind of formlessness and then the new the new age would emerge out of that and so somehow trump got associated with the being the avatar of this this you know ancient egyptian god and i, I you have to say if there's one word that characterizes trump's presidency uh, it has to be chaos you know that's that's something that you know i think that would be the first word most people uh, uh would bring to mind and there were all these other strange coincidences happening too when, when you posted things on this site 4chan everything was anonymous so you know you had no name you could post whatever you wanted and, and did you know you, you could get away with it you didn't have to be responsible for anything but your post got assigned a, uh, an eight digit number and people started noticing that Posts about Trump and about Pepe and about Keck were getting sort of what they called duplicates or triplicates or, or quads in the sense that, say, they would get, you know, two of the same number or three of the same number or four of the same number. And that seemed to happen more and more and more every time they were posting things either about Trump or Pepe or so on and so on. So it seemed to them that there was some kind of approval, you know, they were getting, you know, all these coincidences seemed to suggest that there was some weird approval happening and perhaps they actually had tapped into, you know, uh, some strange other world. And uh, again, you know, you could take it or leave it. And was it all a joke too? You know, was it just something that, you know, people were just uh, playing around with and it got caught on and it was just a, a hoax that became a fad and a craze. But at the same time, <laughs> as I point out in the book, th there have been some actual results in the real world. Uh, was that just a coincidence? Well, I guess that's a $64,000 question. Let's hop across the Atlantic. Who's Alexander Dugan? Alexander Dugan is um, a rather interesting character in the Russian uh, political scene. Uh, today and he has a fascinating uh, career. He started out as a um, 1980s sort of Soviet punk, a uh, teenage punk dissident, um, and he actually got arrested once by the uh, 
KGB uh, uh, for singing uh, an anti-Soviet uh, song at a party. Because of that, they came down on him, you know, fairly heavily, and so um, he, he he wasn't able to go to the you know the better universities, and um, he couldn't get anything more than sort of menial kind of jobs. And he he sort of he he, he moved into this weird late 80s beatnik occult hipster counterculture strange underworld that uh was uh there uh in 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 russia at the time and he became increasingly fascinated with national socialism and and fascism and one of the books that was sort of like the Bible or a big influence on the scene that he found himself in was a book that came out in the early 60s called The Morning of the Magicians. Uh, it was first published in, in France, where it was a huge bestseller. Then it was translated to English, and it was a bestseller in the States and the UK as well. And it more or less kick-started what's known as the occult revival of the 1960s. And that's what my book, Turn Off Your Mind, is about. And one of the things that's talked about in The Morning of Magicians is a fellow named René Guénon who was a French scholar uh, and philosopher of esotericism and, and religion. And he's known as the founder of what's uh, called the traditionalist school of sort of esoteric philosophy. And traditionalism, its, it's basic idea is that uh, in the dim past, there was a fundamental revelation about uh, reality and about man's relation to the cosmos and to God. And this was at the heart of all of the great religions, and that at some point, again, in, in the past, the, the religions sort of separated from this, this fundamental revelation and became, you know, the different religions as we know today. And they sort of lost touch with the initial revelation, although at the heart of each religion, it, it, it's still there. This whole idea of an initial, you know, profound revelation about reality, then uh, sort of separating into the separate uh, religions is also paralleled by the sort of historical um, sort of decline from the golden age down to like the age of silver, age of bronze, into the age of iron, or in, in the Hindu tradition, what's known as the Kali Yuga, which is the dark age. And it's basically, it's a time in which mankind is, is the furthest away from the truth, uh, furthest away from spiritual truth and spiritual reality, uh, and God and the divine and so on. And Gainon believed that 20th century, we, we got sort of the, you know, the worst part of this. And he believed that only by, you know, going back to the, the fundamental basics of this, 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 this vision, uh, which is rooted in a kind of organic, hierarchical, theocratic view of society, uh, sort of like a caste system in the ancient Hindu uh, tradition, where e everyone is sort of slotted into their, their proper place in society, uh, and uh, because that's where they belong, because of their, their qualities or whatever, their talents and abilities and so on. So there isn't any kind of mobility. You, you, you are where you are because you belong. You're, you're part of the body politic in a very literal sense. You're, one, you're a cell in, in this, this organic civilization. And what was wrong with the West, what was wrong in modern times was the rise of democracy and liberalism and individualism and everybody you know, pursuing what they want and the whole dismissal of notions of rank and hierarchy and, and, and tradition and so on. And um, Gainon was perfectly convinced that the West was going to collapse. It was going to you know, just decline. It was on its way out. And he was happy just to sit on the sidelines and watch it go down. And he was writing his books about it and you know, attacking it. But he wasn't actually taking an active part in sort of tearing things down. But um, a follower of his was the Italian esoteric um, philosopher Julius Evola. 
And in, in the Lenin Library in Moscow, uh, a young um, Alexander Dugan, strangely enough, came upon one of one of um, Evola's books on just on the open shelves. And um, he was fascinated with it. And he he translated it um, uh, into Russian. And uh, Evola had the same kind of vision, anti-modern, you know, anti-West vision that um, uh, Gainon had. But he had a much more um, militaristic approach to things. And for, for him, the warrior was was the, the most noble form of life rather than the priest or the sage. And he developed a kind of spiritual warrior ethic, uh, something along the lines of what people, some people ascribe to the Knights Templar back in the Crusades and uh, in different different ways, or depending on, you know, how you understand these things that some people did ascribe to the SS, you know, um, uh, during World War II. Uh, but Evola uh, wrote, a book called Revolt Against the Modern World, which is has to be one of the most you know blistering, uh, scathing attacks on on uh, on the West. Uh, even you know it's it, it takes as its starting point Spengler's decline of the West and sort of goes from there. And all this idea is about the modernity being just absolutely decadent and and you know uh, the great spiritual traditions you know um, being corrupt and so on. This really affected uh, Dugan, and uh, he adopted many of these kind of you know far right ultra-conservative ideas as well as the sort of esoteric ideas. And he became kind of a magpie of sort of political ideologies. And he went, he would take bits and pieces of, you know, national socialism and some Bolshevism and some Stalinism and some of this and, and anything but liberalism, which he, you know, believes is completely the worst. And um, that's the, the bane of mankind. You know, that's, that's, that's why the West is going down. But he, he he would put together these kind of Frankenstein monsters of, of ideology, uh, sort of like Lego bricks or, or Velcroing them together and then see, see what would come out of them. And strange, strangely enough, you know, over the years, he gradually got closer and closer into the actual corridors of power. I mean, Evola, Evola wanted to influence people like Mussolini and he wanted to influence people like Hitler. And he had some influence on Mussolini. And he had an audience for a brief while with National Socialists, but in the end they, they rejected his ideas. So he never really got uh, to see much of his sort of political ideas put into action. But Dugan has, strangely enough, through as one of the strangest, uh, and I've only mentioned a few things, uh, strangest political careers um, where it's like half kind of postmodern cynical joke and half actual, you know, real life, you know, uh, neo-fascist right wing kind of spectacle, you know, uh, politics. Uh, he's actually got to a point where some of his ideas have got, got, got to Putin, basically. Whether it's direct or through a third party or something, it's difficult to say because he himself has gone back and forth about, you know, whether how close he is and how he isn't and all that. And, you know, I, I talk about that in the book. But one of his central ideas is that the great motor of history is this ongoing war, much like I mentioned in the Michael Moorcock novels, this ongoing war between order and chaos, and he sees it as his ongoing war between what he calls the Atlanticists. This is the seafaring nations, so the United States and the UK and you know, basically NATO and, um, and, and such, and uh, what he calls Eurasia. And Eurasia is this the vast, you know, mother of all continents. It's it's the vast single, you know, the biggest landmass on the planet that stretches from uh, Eastern Europe to all the way over over to the other side of the world and all that. And although that that 
term Eurasia has been around and used in different ways uh, at different times. It had very specific meaning um, just uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution because there were a group of emigre Russians, white Russians basically, who um, you know didn't care for the Bolsheviks, uh, but they believed that a revolution wouldn't last, and they found themselves in in, in Prague and in Paris and other places, um, and there was thought they were sitting the revolution out and what they believed was necessary to was to have a, a new idea about what what who Russia was what Russia was about much the same as what Russia has been going through the last you know 20 years uh, today uh, trying to redefine itself and the idea was that Russia wasn't a kind of backward cousin of Europe but a completely new civilization it, it was a it was a new civilization they accepted they, they rejected the idea the enlightenment idea that there's sort of a linear one linear history you know that started whatever day one and it just kept going in a straight line until today and this gradual notion of progress and so on and so on they took a more uh, more along the line of Oswald Spengler I mentioned earlier his idea of, of civilizations being organic that, that they, they're born they, they grow reach maturity then they start to decline and die and so they're sort of individual you know rather than being part of one line they're sort of separate um, kind of uh, entities uh, that can occur next to each other or contiguous and one after the other and so on but this whole idea was that Russia should for forget about trying to keep up with Europe because the Western ideas never really take hold anyway and again that's that's something that seemed to have been uh, proven again um, after the collapse of the USSR and it, it should look instead to the east more of its roots and actually the Mongol past you know the period in the I guess what is it the 11th 12th century when um, the Mongol hordes basically ruled what what was was Kievan Rus then the, the earliest form of Russia and you know uh, what we know is sort of Ukraine uh, today and that's always traditionally seen as sort of this dark time in in Russian history but the Eurasianists are saying no you know we, we actually you know part of who we are part of our culture part of um, our identity is rooted in that and um, it's a whole idea that it's a whole separate new civilization that doesn't have to play by the same rules as the West uh, and it's very kind of anti-West and what Putin is doing recently is sort of it's not a it's, it's not a cold war about ideologies or in the sense of capitalism or communism it's it's a cold war about the decadent hyper-liberal West and Russia which is the upholder of traditional values you know the traditional social order and traditional religious orthodoxy the whole idea of Russia is the third Rome you know Moscow is the third Rome after the fall of Constantinople all these ideas are being kind of revived and and kind of you know brought back uh, into play in an attempt to create a new sort of sense of identity for for Russia and um, Dugan's ideas about this Eurasia uh, notion um, I, I can't go into it in, in, in great detail but but in many ways they informed Putin's moves in, in Crimea and, and, and in the Ukraine uh, because those lands were are part of this Eurasian vision. And again, it, it plays into the notion, the idea that, you know, in some ways what he's trying to do is get back the territories that, you know, belong to the to the Soviet Union. And where does Steve Bannon figure into this? You know, former chief strategist for Trump is also kind of a traditionalist and a Vola fan. Well, yes, that that was uh, that was one of the things that, uh, as I say in the book, struck me as like this was this is certainly a sign that things have changed. There was um, a piece in the um, 
New York Times about um, a talk that Bannon gave to um, a select group of um, churchmen at, at the Vatican, very conservative group. And he was in the States, but it was via Skype. And during the talk, which it, he was giving his usual sort of, you know, anti-Islam and economic nationalism and so on and so on. But he name checks uh, Evola during the talk and he name checks him in the context of referring to Dugan. And he was he was talking about Putin. He was he was sort of giving his kind of um, half half praise and half kind of uh, caginess about Putin, saying yes, he's very intelligent. But one of the things that he likes about him is that he's he's sort of uh, sticking up for traditional values, uh, traditional gender roles, traditional sexual roles, traditional sort of um, you know religious uh, beliefs, and so on and so on and so on. He says that Putin has in his sort of Milieu around him, has in his kind of advisors, more or less around him, someone who who reads Julius Evola. That that's someone who reads Julius Evola is 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 Dugan, is Alexander Dugan. But the fact that uh, Evola's name even got mentioned in the New York Times. I mean, for people like myself who were, uh, well, I, I I write about this sort of thing, so I'm aware of it. If if you're if you're you know if you're knowledgeable in the esoteric world and so on and so on. I mean, uh, how often enough does New York Times say anything about any of that whatsoever, but to pick Evola, who's kind of like a black sheep in many ways within the esoteric world, precisely because of his um, you know, far-right um, uh, political views, that he got name-checked, not, not in any old kind of context, but as you say, in the context of someone who at that time had, had you know, direct, direct contact with Trump and you know, had his ear and was informing him and all that. And again, Bannon, through Breitbart, he enabled he he provided a platform for the alt-right and that was one of the places where they were posting a lot of the peppy stuff and so on and so on so he, he kind of he gave them a portal as it were onto the onto the collective exteriorized imagination of 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 the internet uh and so it was through that portal at breitbart that you know some of this so-called magic if indeed it took place was 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 going on and uh you know bannon too he has um you know, if you know his films, um, you've read interviews, he has he's voiced a very apocalyptic view of things. Um, that um, whole idea of the fourth turning, um, this theory that every 80 years the United States goes through some kind of convulsion, and so this was on its way. This too is something that Dugan is about. He's about some kind of you know big major thing. There's 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 going to be some big bust up finally between the Atlanticists and the Eurasian. Worlds, they're 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 going to have some kind of knockdown kind of thing, uh, but he firmly believes that the West is going to go down, and and you know Russia, which should form ties with Turkey, uh, and Iran, uh, in order to make this new kind of Eurasian bloc over there, and you know he whole he has his eyes on you know parts of Europe, uh, and so on, and also within Europe itself, the alt right is very prominent in some places and as we know you know there's the far-right governments in Hungary on Poland the thing that kind of kick-started it for the sort of the 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 new right or the alt-right to kind of come out and sort of present themselves basically it's like here we are we're not going to hide anymore we're you know just just here we're just (laughs) this is who we are was I guess you know uh Brexit and that was sort of the you know the opening um for for Trump's uh election and when he got elected then they must have felt like, well, you know, whatever we've been doing, uh, it, it works. Um, and so, you know, there's a it's, it's global. You know, there's a global um, 
again, it's not a conspiracy because these people meet up and it's it's in the news and you know um, and so on. But it's something that's there. And as I said, I think it it, it, it seems part of this time when suddenly. Things have been turned inside out. I mean, in the book, I I I I suggest that Trump, Trump Trump being elected is the singularity. I don't know if you, this phrase, the singularity, people uh, in different ways use it. In, in astrophysics, it's a black hole. You know, it's some point where you know the usual laws of physics break down, and um, something quite different is going on. And in kind of new age pop apocalypticism, it's this notion that you know some event is on its way, which is going to change things radically. Um, the character of reality is going to be different. And it struck me that, well, isn't that exactly what happened, you know, after Trump got elected? Because the character of reality changed, not in the sense that solid things weren't solid, but what we understood to be reality had changed and what we understood to be true and false and how we could talk about truth and falsehood anymore and, uh, and so on and so on. So it does seem to me that something did happen. With, with that taking place, and you know, it depends how depends how depends how far you want to allow the metaphor, you know, to go. But in a certain sense, the kind of chaos I think that people like Dugan and people like Bannon, sort of looking toward, uh, uh, is is actually taking place. It, it feels as if now that there are political technologists, to borrow a Russian phrase, um, on either side that have become almost like gurus. And these gurus are pushing a base level idea that if you believe in something enough, you can make it true. That feels politically dangerous to me as we're, as we're moving into this new, <laughs> this new era. Well, there you go. I mean, I, that's it. You know, um, reality is up for grabs. You can create your own reality. And I think rather than just dismiss that idea as crazy and, you know, irrational and, you know, whatever – why don't we just, okay, let's say, okay, okay, yes, that's true. What can we do about that? And if it is true that we create reality, I think we should be a bit more alert to uh, um, what's happening because other people seem to, you know, not to hesitate about doing it. And as you say, yes, if you believe in something enough, um, that's more important than whether it, whether it's true or not. And this can be a good thing. This can be a liberating thing. You know, this can be something that, you know, gets someone out of some rut in which, you know, they've been stuck for a long time and, you know, um, their lives become boring and, and so on and lifeless. And, and somehow this conviction is born in them that, you know, they can do more and then they go and do. So that, that can be a good thing. But then I guess the other side, it can become too, you know, too focused on achieving your goals or your desires or, uh, dismissing any reality other than, you know, the one that, um, you know, you want. But, I mean, that, that's a very American thing, you have to say. I mean, this is one reason, like, the in Europe, the kind of go get them, you know, positive thinking, forward, affirmative um, sensibility that is behind a great deal of sort of positive thinking and prosperity gospel. It never really, never really picked up here so much, uh, just like the hot gospel uh, doesn't really – pick up here. I, I think more than anything else, uh, any of that kind of, not fanaticism, but uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, craze, obsession, it's, it's, it's more political uh, than, 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 than anything else. Uh, but because the states very much, you know, that's part of the whole American culture and has been from the beginning very much. That's, that's uh, part of it there. So it, you, you have advocates of positive thinking or new thought in this, uh, as, as a good thing in the sense that it can be very motivating and, you know, stimulating and, you know, 
getting people to achieve more. But then obviously there's you know the caution uh, about um, becoming too obsessed with with that. And um, in the political context, the whole idea. Well, well, I, well, this is one of the points I make, um, and, and not, not to make the analogy too uh, uh, too extreme and too close, but I refer to uh, there's a book about Hitler's dark charisma. Uh, Lawrence Reese, I think, is the author, and um, he says that you know National Socialism wasn't really a political platform. You know, it, 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 it was it was it was an emotional state. You know, people voted for Hitler not uh, for you know rational reasons. Uh, for the political, you know, ideas or whatever he said he was, he 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 was going to achieve, but for this kind of emotional state that he generated in them, and it it, it was a movement. They got caught up in it. It was like a religious revival rather than, uh, you know, a kind of thought out political thing. And this was something also I, I referred to George Orwell, who was 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 in Europe at the, at the time and um, was writing about Hitler's rise and how he. He recognized that, you know, what the German people wanted of him was not only, you know, sort of shorter working hours or, you know, the trains to run on time or, you know, to weed out corruption or all that, but they want, they wanted some, some, some kind of sense of, of meaning, some kind of larger sense, some sort of sense of, of, uh, heroism and, and grandeur and glory. And while Orwell was very critical of that, he recognized that, well, it, it, th- those things are real, you know, human beings, on top of all the rational things we need, like food and, you know, drink and shelter and all that, we we have these emotional, for sake of a better word, hunger for our lives to be part of something that's meaningful. This was something that Hitler could tap into, and Mussolini did as well. And you know, I guess to some degree you can say Trump is doing that, and Trump is doing that, and has been doing that um, through his television shows and through his books, not straightforwardly politically, but more, you know, I guess, in terms of you know. Um, your 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 prosperity, you know, you you can become rich too, and, and and so on and so on. But still, he's appealing to a certain kind of sense of meaning, and that's if I I think you know when you have if you have political pundits and 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 thinkers who don't take that into consideration and and somehow think that you know we we should be free of all that stuff and we're supposed to have been free since the Enlightenment, uh, and as long as they try to understand the appeal of something like National socialism or other kind of uh, fascist um, uh, visions, and in terms of economics or you know some other reasonable, calculable um, uh, uh, factor, they're, they're not going to understand what, what what's really at work. The book is Dark Star Rising: Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. It is out in the states in June. Uh, Gary Lockman, thank you so much for coming on War College. Talk to us. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, listeners, thank you for bearing with us as we try some new things here on War College. Again, this is a bonus episode. Next week, we are going to be running something about uh, military AI, much more in line with our normal topics. But we appreciate you indulging us. Did you like the episode? Did you hate the episode? Do you want us to do more things like this or just stay the course? Uh, Drop us a line. Let us know at war underscore college on Twitter or via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. You can also find us online at warcollege.co. As always, thank you for listening.